Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This hour of the Costa Report is brought to you by Dole Food Company, the world's leading producer and distributor of fresh fruits and vegetables. Welcome to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and today we are broadcasting live from the G20 Summit in London, where I've had the honor of welcoming heads of state and delegates who've gathered to discuss economic growth and opportunity in Africa. Uh, this hour, we were supposed to interview the Minister of State of Works for Nigeria uh, to talk about the how the 37th economy in the world is going through an unprecedented transformation. And I can tell you <laughs> that he is still uh, has not arrived in the studio. And um, I got on the phone with my producers and it was interesting because uh, one of them said, this is uh, this is the moment that separates professional radio journalists from amateurs. So I hope I pass the test today. We're we're in for an interesting report on the G20 summit. Uh, I hadn't prepared to give this to you because I was hoping that the Minister of Works of Nigeria would be here and we could share uh, that responsibility. But I have been uh, spending two full days with representatives throughout Africa as well as uh, funders, funders of projects throughout Africa. And it's been a very enlightening two days. I can tell you that it's been a very optimistic time for the people of Africa. Although one of the, um, I guess, disappointing aspects of this conference is many of the same issues that were addressed in last year's conference are still on the drawing board. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. And as you know, uh, since I'm broadcasting from the BBC studios in London, uh, we are on Royal Baby Watch. <laughs> and uh, and somebody said something kind of fun to me. I'd been on my feet for two days here at the G20 summit. And they said, I bet when they said they when they started talking about inducing labor, you didn't think that they meant you. Um, and uh, no, I did not uh, think that inducing labor meant I would be standing on my feet for two days. Um, this gathering in London has been a very important one because, as you know, the gold rush has been on in Africa to seize up uh, oil rights as well as mineral rights. And we can see the greatest growth in the countries who, which have acted quickly to uh, work out deals, if you will. There's a lot of talk during this conference about what's called PPPs, which are uh, private and public partnerships. And uh, those programs are in particular um, uh, advocated by Baroness Linda Chalker, 
who was the minister of Europe and also uh, was the person that oversaw um, investments from the UK in Africa. I uh, had an opportunity to visit with her at the House of Lords at the British Parliament, and uh, and she is very interested in why these partnerships are not going well. I have my own theories, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But essentially, the bankers are trying to relay a very clear message to those who want money to build out infrastructure throughout Africa. And uh, even though these are not their words, uh, of course, as financial professionals, they use different words. What they're looking for is the lowest risk possible. They know it can't be zero, but they'd like it to be as close to zero as possible. And they're looking for the largest returns that they can get out of Africa. And the reason that their investments in Africa fundamentally appear risky is because of political instability. To go in to build a a hydroelectric dam is a very long-term proposition, a very expensive one. And it will take uh, quite a considerable amount of time for an investor to start seeing profits from that. And in many ways, they can't move forward on projects like that independently without the government. So there is no choice but to have a private and public partnership, particularly if the government can't afford to build out those kinds of infrastructures on their own. And so... The basic problem is when you're looking at a very long-term project, a very expensive project, one that has to be paid out over time, you have to immediately think about who is the customer for that project. And the customer, obviously, would be the citizens of that particular nation. So that's what the government brings to table. the table. What the government brings to the table is, um, is the support, endorsement, and brings the customer to uh, the private investors. What the private investors bring our money. You know, they bring money to the table. And they need to recoup that with a considerable amount of profit. And when there's a politically unstable climate, as you're seeing in Egypt right now, or as you used to see in Angola, that was many, many years ago. And I have some good news about Angola, which we'll talk about in just a moment as well. But when you see that there's a lot of internal civil war um, and strife in Nigeria, we see that the um, Islamic factions in Nigeria are really creating a great deal of threat to the stability of Nigeria, despite um, the election of Good Luck Jonathan. Uh, and, and I think that's such a wonderful name. Good luck, Jonathan. It's a, it's a fabulous name and, and what, a, what an Im- a remarkable citizen uh, to rise to the top of Nigeria. But I will say that investors are looking for as, low, uh, as close to a zero risk as possible, and they want to see uh, political stability. And uh, it's very difficult for them to think about investing in hydroelectric uh, plants and uh, in railways and um, basic infrastructure in Africa unless they can see those ingredients. And so the message was pretty clear from those that represent different development organizations, different banks from around the world. There was a very large uh, Portuguese contingent here, a very large contingent from Brazil who has been uh, partners with um, with the African nations for many, many years, uh, and uh, and also, of course, a very large European contingent as well. 
Now, there are some things that I've observed at this conference, and today I made a rather rousing speech. (laughs) I got a lot of reaction for it. Um, When I go out on a limb, I'm a rather conservative individual, so when I go out on a limb like that, um, most of the time I I wind up regretting it because it raises so much controversy. And so I'm generally one of those individuals that would rather have my guests speak and listen to what they have to say and, and keep my head down and just mind my own business. Um, that might not seem like something that you'd expect from a radio personality, uh, but I think that that is what makes my program unique. I think I'm not so eager to get my opinions out on the air so much as I'm curious, just as you are, about what's being done and what uh, maybe people in leadership positions might think about and how they view our problems. But I did go on and a bit on a limb today. I was offered uh, 25 minutes on the main floor to talk about my observations of the G20 summit. And it was, I did say something that I think was a little disturbing. And, uh, and so there were so many questions about it. We broke to a special room, and the room was pretty much packed with people that had questions. Because remember that the ministers of um, transportation, of education, of finance from these African nations are all present here, and they're all looking for uh, how uh, to get their projects, their infrastructure projects, funded. That's why they're here. And the banks are here to tell them how to get them funded. And so there's a lot of side rooms where uh, discussions are going on that are very real and very important to the future of Africa. But one of the things that I noticed is the narrowness in which we're describing infrastructure. And I see this as extremely problematic. When we talk about building out infrastructure in Africa, We're talking about railways and pipelines to be able to get oil, uh, extract oil out of Africa and get it to other nations. We're we're talking about uh, being able to get minerals exported in a more convenient way. And the infrastructure that they're talking about is infrastructure that the United States was looking at 200 years ago. Um, And so I'm a little bit concerned about that. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. We're coming up on a commercial break. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you about traditional versus non-traditional infrastructure and why I think Africa is being trapped into developing technologies and infrastructure that uh, won't last for very long and won't be to any competitive advantage. Uh, So we'll take our commercial break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. This Legal Minute is brought to you by Nolan, Hammerley, Etienne, and Haas. Experienced attorneys providing professional legal services to the Central Coast for 85 years. Hello, this is attorney Stephen Wagner with your Legal Minute. Have you ever said to yourself there ought to be a law for that? Well, often there is. In this segment, I will address the issue of social media and hiring practices, and specifically the potential employer's right to snoop around in social media networks to gather information about the potential employee. From the employer's perspective, social networking sites must seem like a treasure trove or petri dish, overflowing with valuable information. 
The hot-button legal issue that has arisen recently relates to the employer's request, or worse yet, demand for the candidate's password and or username. It is this conduct by the employer that has sparked outcry and controversy based on privacy rights, and this has led to legislation and the enactment of laws that now prohibit employers from making such demands or requests. Such is the case in California and several other states. It would now seem that the lid has been placed back on the Petri dish. However, it is important to note that employers still have a right to access all public information, that is, anything the potential or current employee chooses to share, publish, or make public. In other words, these laws do not protect job seekers from their own stupidity or indiscretions that they decide to gloat about by publishing their escapades on the World Wide Web. So, it seems, that discretion is still the better part of valor. This is Stephen Wagner, and that's your Legal Minute. Brought to you by Nolan Hammerley, Etienne & Haas. Selected in 2013 as one of the top law firms in the United States by Martindale Hubble. I've been talking about Sleep Number for a while now and how much I love my bed. My goodness, it's made such a tremendous difference in the way both Celeste and I sleep. My Sleep Number bed is up there around 100. I like it nice and firm. Celeste, 80 or so. What's great about the people at Sleep Number, they're always looking for ways to improve the way we sleep. And they've done it again with a memory foam bed. The all-new Sleep Number memory foam bed is a perfect combination of cool contouring foam and the unique adjustability of the Sleep Number bed. Dual air technology. That's what makes their memory foam bed unique. At the heart of the mattress are two individually adjustable air chambers that allow you to personalize your comfort. It's memory foam redefined. You only get this bed at a Sleep Number store. You can enjoy introductory savings of $400 on the all-new Sleep Number memory foam bed. And right now, during their white sale, you can stock up and save on their exclusive bedding collection. There are 400 Sleep Number stores nationwide, but the one you want is on 41st Avenue in Capitola Mall. Say hello to Carlos, the store manager, and be sure and tell him that Charlie Friedman from the Happy Hour program on KSCO is the one who sent you down. They call me Mr. Mom, and I'm here to talk with you Fridays, 7 p.m., about the big challenges of raising families in modern times. Hi, I'm David Marine, the author of This Is Us, the story of my adopting and raising, single-handedly, three children who do not look like me into young adults. And that's why they send me cards on Mother's Day. On the Mr. Mom radio show, we'll talk about being moms and dads, married or single, about teaching children right before they get taught wrong, about turning a house into a family home. Let's talk about the real big family challenges on Mr. Mom, Fridays, 7 p.m. Remember, Friday is Mr. Mom Day on KSCO. This is a- Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, we are reporting from the G20 Summit in London, uh, where the uh, entire country is on baby watch. 
<laughs> and uh, I guess I'm on baby watch here. When in London, do as the Londoners do. So to continue my discussion about uh, what is going on with the G20 and what is happening in Africa, and this does in- influence us. I know a lot of people are saying, why are you covering Africa? Well, it's because some of the largest oil reserves in the world have been discovered in Africa. And of course, there's been a land grab to get in there and grab not only oil and gas rights, but also uh, mineral rights. In the meantime, what what do the African nations want? They want to build out infrastructure. But here's where uh, I have a problem with what I've observed at the G20. The kind of infrastructure that uh, is willing to be financed is old infrastructure. It's exactly the infrastructure that we're trying to abandon in the advanced countries. Let me give you an example. Um, it's, it's easy to get a, a loan for a hydroelectric plant, for example, but not so easy to get anything related to solar. And so what happens is uh, a lot of the a lot of the projects that can get funded tend to be things like uh stringing electrical and phone lines out to villages. Now, if you live in London um where I'm broadcasting today or you live in the United States, you know that buried phone lines are uh, an old infrastructure that we're forced to service. In the meantime, everyone's moved to cell phones. And so to the extent that Africa has an opportunity to bypass old infrastructure, they won't be saddled with servicing it the way we do, uh, we are, and they'll be able to move much more quickly. And yet the only kinds of projects that can be financed is the continuation of building out old infrastructure. I want to give you a specific example that I used in my presentation today at the G20. They were talking about you've got to go build more airports. You need more airports throughout uh, Africa. And uh, they were talking about the fact that they wanted funding for those airports. Now, first of all, I don't know how a private investor gets their money out of building an airport. I'm sure there is a creative way to do that. But one thing I do know is that in a project like that, it would take a very, very long time to recover your money and make a a significant enough profit. So you're tying up a great deal of capital over a long period of time. And those are not ideal investments, uh, particularly when there's no clear exit strategy. Uh, But here's the problem I have. Even if you got busy building airports today, the fact is, is that Richard Branson is already building spaceports. So by, by the time these airports are fully functional, we won't be using airports anymore. We'll be using spaceports. And if you're not familiar with spaceport projects, uh, we've now demonstrated that the most efficient way to fly long distances is to go directly at an angle uh, into suborbital space and then come back down. In other words, we won't be flying horizontal to the Earth's surface anymore because that's a very inefficient way to get uh, to from one area to another area, particularly if there are long distances, it's a lot more efficient to fly up into suborbital space and then come back down. And so there are, I believe, seven, eight, nine uh, spaceports being built around the world. Even if Africa, the nations in Africa, got busy now building airports. There Maybe those airports would be valid for 5, 10, 15 more years, after which that infrastructure is no longer valid. 
And so what I think is the big opportunity for Africa is to go immediately to state-of-the-art, bypass the old infrastructure that advanced nations are saddled with and are having to service while they try to move forward. Remember, we have the burden of all underground gas and pipelines and underground phone lines, and we have to maintain those while we're maintaining cellular uh, towers and satellite communications. Africa doesn't have that burden right now, nor do they have the myriad of regulations that keep a nation from moving forward. Google has announced that they're going to be putting these big blimps up with cellular towers so that people throughout the Sahara Desert area will have uh, internet access. But can you imagine blimps flying all around the uh, above New York City or San Francisco, a dozen blimps flying around? There is no way that regulations would allow something like that to happen, and yet we don't have those issues in Africa. So in my view, the fact that there are very few regulations, and those regulations are open-ended at this time, the fact that they don't have old infrastructure that has to be dealt with, and the fact that they can move to state-of-the-art programs. Uh, I talked to them about space-based solar as an example. We can admit to ourselves that these mattresses that you lay out on your roof or you lay out on the ground to collect solar energy is old technology. You must know it's old technology because it's been around since we were in high school. Uh, Yes, the efficiencies have increased uh, by by a significant amount. I I don't want to take anything away from that in the solar industry, but that is not the best way to capture solar energy. And if you're interested in what I'm saying, you could go Google space-based solar energy. The scientists at NASA have proven that the best place to collect solar energy is in outer space where you have no atmospheric interference. And they've developed uh, certain types of uh, very uh, specialized cells that power the satellites out in outer space. And they have constructed arrays of uh, made out of these specialized cells to capture a great deal of solar energy. And they have proven that by putting a simple satellite dish on a home or a business, that they can beam down a diluted form of energy and store it in a battery at a local area. Now let's go to Africa and take a look at the implications to villages in remote areas that don't have electricity, can't run uh, water purification systems, uh, have no power to um, uh, be able to offer uh, remote education over the internet or run computers, uh, not even uh, charge their cell phones. If the alternative is to string a wire all the way out to that village or go directly to space-based solar where any person who has the ability to install a satellite dish similar to your direct TV dish can have power... Uh, and not only that, let me just tell you one more benefit to that. That is that when the weather changes, when you have storms and, and you have rains and that kind of thing, you don't have power outages, not when it's coming from outer space. And there's absolutely no environmental impact to doing it this way. So you might ask, well, why aren't we doing that in the United States? Well, that's a story for another day because that's a political issue inside the United States. And I think you know where that's going to go. It's going to wind up at the doorstep of the oil companies. Uh, but, But in Africa, we don't have that situation. In Africa, Africa is the Wild West right now. 
and the 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 road is wide open for them. And rather than getting stuck with old infrastructure, I'd rather see these banks and these development agencies invest in uh, space-based solar, uh, spaceports. Uh, water purification systems that are state-of-the-art, internet-based education, 3D printing. In fact, we're going to take a short break and when we come back, let's talk about 3D printing and the ramifications that that has on old infrastructure. You're listening to the Costa Report. I'm Amy Tobin, cookbook author and culinary expert. Strawberries, blueberries, blackberries, and raspberries. Dole has a bounty of berries ripe for the picking. Fresh berries are not only delicious, but some of the most powerful disease-fighting foods available. Researchers have found that berries have some of the highest antioxidant levels of any fresh fruits. So add a handful or two of your favorite berries to your next meal and enjoy their nutritional benefits and natural sweetness in all of your dishes, from salads to desserts and everything in between. For fresh tips and ideas from Dole's berry experts, visit berries.dole.com. And be sure to check out the pages of mouthwatering recipes. Whether it's a sweet and savory blueberry cranberry chicken salad or a simple strawberry sorbet, Dole has the perfect berry to inspire your next berrylicious dish. Hi, this is Dean Sutton of Sutton Law Firm. I want to invite you to consider Sutton Law Firm for your legal problems. We emphasize property law, evictions, easements, boundary line disputes, tree problems, sale of real property, trust administration disputes. Give us a call. New Santa Cruz office at 831-431-6483. That's 831-431-6483. Give us a call at Sutton Law Firm. When the going gets tough, you need to call Aldolfo Garcia. Recently, we needed some work done here at the radio station. We called Community Tree Service. That's Adolfo Garcia's company. He showed up immediately from the phone call. We said what we wanted done, which was a huge amount of work done. He and his staff were here at 8 o'clock the next morning. They followed all safety procedures. Community Tree Service are fully insured, and I was very impressed at the way they cleaned up the area after they'd finished working and clearing a huge amount of brush and trees. I love, love, love Community Tree Service. Adolfo Garcia is the owner of a local business. You can reach them at communitytreeservice.net. You can reach them at 763-2391. If you've got a job to do, when the going gets tough, Community Tree Service gets going. I love this company. It is raucous. It is fun. So get up and go for it. Take the family, take the friends, take the entire neighborhood to the rip-roaring racing fun at Ocean Speedway in Watsonville. Friday night, it's Ocean Sprint Night number 11, presented by Taco Bravo. That means loud and raucous racing with 360 sprint cars, four bangers, American stock, sport mods, and wingless sprints. Adults, $17. Seniors, 65 plus for 16. Kids, 6 to 12, 13. 
Details at OceanSpeedway.com. Ocean Speedway is located at the Santa Cruz County Fairgrounds, just two miles east of downtown Watsonville on Highway 152. Get up and go for the loud, raucous, rip-roaring racing fun this Friday night at Ocean Speedway. Get a new view of the world with Coast to Coast AM. When do you see this entire picture unfold? It's unfolding right in front of us. The corporate struck runs our government. And most importantly, they keep us on the two-party system. As long as they can convince the American people that your choices between evildoers, the Democrats, or evildoers, the Republicans, they have absolute control of you. The biggest threat would be a genuine third party. Here, Coast to Coast with George Norrie, Monday through Friday, beginning at 10 p.m. on KSCO. Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, we are reporting live from the G20 Summit in London. And, uh, you know, I was talking a little bit about old infrastructure, new infrastructure, and the fact that advanced nations are stuck with old infrastructure. They're having to service it. Uh, It's a tremendous tax to do that, and it slows down moving to state-of-the-art, whereas Africa really is a blank uh, slate and um, and so you know my message to those development agencies and those banks that were there and interested in funding infrastructure is to open up the definition of infrastructure. I want to see some bleeding edge projects for Africa on the table: space-based solar, spaceports, uh, water purif- purification systems that run on cow dung. Dean Kamen's got a water purification system called Slingshot, and it, it requires no reusable or renewable carbon filters, no nothing. It's about the size of a small dishwasher, and it runs on about a handful of uh, cow dung a day. Um, so if there's a cow in the, in the neighborhood, you can have clean and fresh water. I also talked to them about Internet-based education and the fact that they want to put in all these highways and roads. And I started talking about 3D printing something we've discussed on this program before. You know, eventually we're not going to be transporting all these products. I know this sounds like something in Star Trek, and we should have William Shatner back on to talk about 3D printing. Uh, uh, but if you've ever seen a 3D printer, and I have seen one and, and printed out a little toy that was operational, um, if you've ever seen 3D printing, what 3D printing will allow you to do is to see something on the Internet, order it, and actually manufacture it at home. So the more that we push Africa into developing technologies that are going to become obsolete, we're moving to a virtual and digital world. And as long as Africa is following hundreds of years behind industrial nations and we're now prescribing to them old infrastructure that we ourselves are trying to abandon, there can be no hope for Africa. You cannot tell a continent to adopt infrastructure that you yourselves are trying to get rid of. Rebecca. And that was the question that I, I put to the, yes, I, I hear Bill, I hear, is that you, Bill? That's, that, yeah, it's your, your California engineer. Listen, I have a question for you. You, you, you mentioned this twice and it brings up a, a good question. Uh, are these folks who are looking at Africa and this, and the, and the future of Africa, are they hoping to avoid some of the pitfalls we've, we've done in the United States? I mean, there are some areas of the United States where we have pretty good transportation between cities, but it's nothing like Japan or anywhere in Europe. 
it seems to me that if they were going to spend money on infrastructure, they would do it in such a way that it doesn't, you don't end up being dependent on cars. You know, you would think that. And and by the way, it's so great to hear your voice because I'm kind of homesick. <laughs> I'm kind of homesick. I, I don't travel well and, you know, I can't wait to get, get back to the States. But uh, you're absolutely right. They should look at industrialized nations and they should cherry pick those technologies, those infrastructure projects that worked well and don't work well. The fact is, is that with mobile applications, you can take care of a great deal of people's health concerns. You can, you can even set up education without schools. While everyone's telling them to build schools, actual brick-and-mortar schools, they should be moving to Internet-based education models. While everyone's telling them to build more hospitals, they should be developing fantastic mobile applications that would let you know if you even need to visit a hospital or not so that they could cut down on the number of hospital visits. They have such a tremendous opportunity to do it right. And yet what's happening is there's no one in there talking to them about what state-of-the-art is. What everyone's trying to do is to get them to catch up to our old infrastructure. And, and so the comment that I made, and I think it really resonated with everyone in the room, and, and by the way, this is the great advantage that I have. I am beholding to no one. I cannot be paid off by anyone. You know, I, I am loyal to no political party. Uh, to, I am loyal to no particular corporate sponsor. Well, except for the chocolate lobby. The chocolate lobby. Okay, there you got me. I'm a liar. Anybody offers me chocolate, I'll say anything. The truth does come out. Uh, uh, But the fact is, is that I stood on the stage and I said, I just have one thing to say to all of the ministers, all of the leaders of the African nations here. And that is just because infrastructure, which is better than what you have today, is being offered to you. That doesn't mean you have to take it. And this is the condition that they're in. Things are so terrible that even if old infrastructure that, has, that is a dead end is offered to them because it'll be funded, they're willing to accept it. And I think they should be much more selective. And so what I've recommended to them, and everybody stood up and applauded and got very excited about it, is I've recommended that they allow these bleeding-edge technologies to come in and present to ministers. I'd like a full day tacked on to the G20 summit where IBM can come in and show Watson applications in the hospital, where Richard Branson can come in and talk about spaceports and how they're going to work, where we can have representatives from NASA come in and talk about space-based solar and how to implement it. Dean Kamen come in and talk about water purification systems, talk about 3D printing, the greatest uh, companies in the world that offer online internet education, you know, guys that are developing agriculture cultural applications for cell phones. These are the things that we need to get in front of these ministers because their imagination has been truncated. They no longer have vision. They're now thinking about how can I get an asphalt road from this village to the other village. And when they said that to me, I said, what do you need the road for? And they looked at me as though I had gone crazy. They said, we want to put an asphalt road in between this village and the other. And I said, what for? They said, so that a truck can go between them. And I said, what for? What would the truck be doing? 
And they said, well, the truck has to deliver. And I said, look, I don't want to take anything away from it. It's probably a great idea, right? But you're assuming you need a road. You're assuming that that's the best way to get those goods there. You know, you haven't thought about helicopters, blimps, jetpacks. Can you imagine if if Africa made jetpacks? Or even a high-speed train. High-speed rail for cargo, not passengers, would be fantastic. But none of those projects are on the table. None of them are in the works. What, What is in the works is so old... And, and the kind of infrastructure that is not where the world is going. And I think it was the first time, by the way, that, that at the Africa Infrastructure Investment G20 Summit, I believe this was the first time that anyone said to them, don't do it, leapfrog. Because my comment to them is, when you, when you develop a culture of following industrialized nations, the very definition of following is you never get out ahead. You're always behind. That's what it means to follow. And, for Af- and Africa has been dealing with this for how many years? Right? Forever. Forever. Their only hope now is to invite in and partner with state-of-the-art technologies and then just, you know, just bypass all this other uh, old archaic infrastructure that they're putting in right now. You know, now. Rebecca, this happened in Mexico when uh, the universities uh, realized that they didn't have any bad old technology that they had to incorporate. And, and they all the universities in Mexico now have wireless way before we did because they didn't have anything before it to encumber them. You know, that's absolutely right. Um, And I know this because when I saw that, I invested in Telephony de Mexico. This was in the 1980s. I saw that only one out of, I believe it was one out of eight people in the 1980s had a telephone in Mexico. And Telephony de Mexico put out a, um, a stock offering, and they said, we're not going to go to landlines. In fact, we want to destroy all the, the telephone landlines in Mexico that exist right now. We're going to go straight to cellular. And that is a perfect example, Bill, of what Africa needs to do is use that as a model because that puts them out ahead of the industrialized nations. And that is what will attract capital when they get on that path. All right. We got to take a short commercial break. And uh, Bill and I will be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. If you listen to the news today, you might come away with the impression that our biggest challenges are political and economic. But if this were true, then countries which have different political and economic systems would be facing different problems. But they aren't. Every government and every nation is struggling with job creation, debt, immigration, climate change, terrorism, health care, energy, and wild swings in financial markets. So something else must be going on. That's why I'm inviting you to get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, a book which shows how the Roman, Mayan, and Khmer empires once faced similar challenges and what we can do to avoid their fate. Visit RebeccaCosta.com today and get a copy of The Watchman's Rattle, because once you do, you'll never look at the world the same way.
I'm here today with Scott Caraccioli of Caraccioli Cellars. Now, there's a number of ways you can taste wines at the tasting room. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, we currently have nine different wines on our tasting menu, and we really want it to be an experience where you get to taste the wine that you want to taste. So if you want to taste Pinot, you can really focus your flight around that. If you wanted to focus on the bubbles, we have three different sparklings that will allow you to build your flight that way. Or if you came in and you just wanted to taste one wine, we would uh, have it set up for you to be able to do that as well. Now, what's a flight? A flight is basically a combination of small tastes of different wines. If you wanted to taste all of our different Chardonnays, you could taste the 2007 Chardonnay, the 2008, and the 2009, and we would line you up with an individual taste of each of them. Thank you for being with us again, Scott. Thank you, Rebecca. Severino's Bar and Grill in Aptos is always busting with excitement. You'll get a family atmosphere, casual dining in or outdoor on the patio next to the koi pond and waterfall. Tasty salads, appetizers, and affordable entrees. Happy hour every day from 3 to 6. If it's live music you enjoy, they have it. Thursday, Friday, and Saturday nights. Sports? Watch the games on the five flat screens. Severino's Bar and Grill is a great place to meet friends and family. Severino's Bar and Grill, inside the Sea Cliff Inn on Highway 1 in Aptos. Cliffin.com. Before you head out onto the open road this summer, head on over to North Bay Ford and test drive a new Ford Fiesta, Focus, Fusion, or the incredible C-Max Hybrid. Hello, I'm Bobby Robinson. North Bay Ford is your locally owned dealership with low overhead, friendly, small town values, and great deals on new cars and trucks. Get this, Bobby's deal at North Bay Ford. A thrilling summer adventure. You heard right. At North Bay Ford's Summer Spectacular Sale, you'll thrill at the heroic performance and blockbuster deals on the fuel-efficient Fusion, Focus, Fiesta, and C-Max Hybrid. Go now and get your thrilling Ford adventure. This summer, head over to North Bay Ford and test drive a Ford Fiesta, Focus, Fusion, or C-Max. And enjoy the ride of your life. We look forward to meeting you at our locally owned North Bay Ford, 1999 Soquel Avenue, Santa Cruz, or on the web at NorthBayFord.com. Michael Olson's first law of the food chain. Agriculture is the foundation upon which we build all our sandcastles. That's right, folks. No surplus of food, no sandcastles. So before we all get upset from the dust and noise of agriculture, let's get together Saturday at 9 a.m. as the Food Chain Radio Show goes behind the scenes of the industry that keeps us all civilized. If you have a comment about the first law of the food chain, tell me, Michael Olson, all about it at MetroFarm.com. Now, see you all on KSCO Saturday at 9 a.m. for some What's Eating What Radio on the Food Chain. What day was that? Welcome back to the Costa Report. I'm Rebecca Costa, and if you're just joining us, we're reporting live from the G20 Summit in London. And I'm with my engineer in California, Bill Graff, and uh, I was just telling him it was so great to hear his voice. I'm a little homesick. <laughs> you're, you're pretty far away from home at this point. I am. I, I am, and I, I, I don't travel well. I miss my dog. I miss my own bed. You know, it's so great to go out and travel in the world, but that first day that you get home and you sleep in your own bed and you get to take your own shower and go into your kitchen and make your own coffee, gosh, does that feel good. Hey, I have to ask you, um, mm-hmm. are there any other big glaring problems those guys are talking about over there? 
there there are there's two other issues that I really wanted to address and again you know it was my place to address these because I'm not an elected official I'm not a banker trying to court favor with any country you know I think that they need to think about inviting people who really have no vested interest they don't want anything I didn't want a deal from them I didn't want a contract from anybody I just wanted to make some observations so when I stood on the stage I said I am here to be of service to you that is the only reason I am here and I'm here to tell you what I know and what I am observing and what some solutions that you might consider might be, some alternatives, uh, and to open up the thinking a little bit. So the first one was to redefine our definition of infrastructure into traditional and non-traditional, and I'd like to see bankers figure out how to fund non-traditional infrastructure. The, the second one, uh, which you asked me about, you know, is there, are there any other issues? There's a second issue, and that is almost all the trade that goes on from all African nations, from Angola, South Africa, uh, Mozambique, uh, you just name a country, uh, is with outside countries. They don't trade with each other. That's kind of shocking, isn't it? It's very shocking, and it leads me to another question about this. Uh, does the, the political differences in various countries in Africa and the fact that some of them are overtly corrupt, does that not... Um, limit commerce and limit progress in the overall continent? It, it absolutely does. There, There is corruption everywhere, uh, it, it, and it's impossible to avoid that. Uh, I believe there was a, a, a watch group that just came out in the last four days that said that uh, Nigeria was the uh, sixth or seventh most corrupt country uh, in the world. Uh, which uh, had my minister of Nigeria shown up, we were going to talk about that. You know, is that really true or is that just an impression? You know, this is all of this program is all about getting to the bottom of the truth. So I don't like to read articles or read studies without asking the people to comment on it. And uh, and that was an opportunity here. Um, but yeah, there's corruption through and through. And, uh, and that's a culture that has to change. But when you think about it, when you're asking outsiders to bring in capital, for very, very large projects and complex projects and long-term projects, uh, it's already a risky proposition. Then when you layer on top of that political unrest, well, no wonder capital isn't coming into your country, right? Well, well not only that, you investment, you know, everybody's going everybody's to shy away from an investment if they think the money's going to get siphoned off. Right. And what you have is changes in regime. And when those regime changes happen, maybe there was a project like a hydroelectric plant and the the next regime says, no, we're not going to do that anymore. And then how does everybody get paid? Very slowly. Right. 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 So one of the interesting things is is that a lot of the um, banks that are within the countries inside of Africa, they're acting as brokers. What they do is they work with the government. They know the local culture. They know the officials. They know the processes. And then what they do is they go out and find international investors and then basically put together limited partnerships and they broker the deal. So what you have is the local banks working as an intermediary in many, many cases. 
Uh, and uh, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's always good to have uh, feet on the street in a localized area if you're coming in to do a particular business. But even those banks are wanting to fund old infrastructure, which are asphalt roads and building more schools and more hospitals, as opposed to going uh, to more uh, efficient electronic solutions. So, uh, you know, I even had conversations with them. And I talked to a lot of developmental agencies who have billions and billions of dollars available but they're waiting for proposals. They're waiting for, um, uh, they're waiting. I don't know what they're waiting for, really. You know, I, I in fact, I, I, I was on the verge of a little bit scolding because I said, look, uh, there are no business plans that are perfect. I worked in Silicon Valley for 30 years, never seen one. So what are you waiting for? If you see the potential there, uh, I, I think what you're doing is you're being too cautious and you're using the fact that the business plan doesn't have enough um, math literal math in it that you don't want to fund it. Um, but you, what you really need to do is realize that you're not in the banking business, you're in the venture capital business. And uh, and so that brings me to my third issue that I addressed while I've been here at the G20, and that is the way in which capital is being invested in Africa is very backward. Uh, if you could think of it as a tube versus a funnel, in a tube, you're trying to get down to a decision to fund maybe one, two, or three large energy product, uh, projects or large transportation projects. And uh, what you're trying to do is look for money to be able to start the project and take it all the way to completion. So if you took that tube and you drew lines throughout the tube from one end to the other, you would have these projects that start at the top of the tube and end at the bottom of the tube, which is completion. But that forces you early on, before you can do any, uh, you know, any actual development, it forces you to choose. You have to pick which projects are a priority and which are most likely to deliver the highest return, the highest benefit to the society. And I would argue that these projects are so complex, why choose? Because the venture capital model doesn't force you to choose. And this is something that I offered a workshop in, and it was standing room only. I said, for, for the ministers, I would ask them to use a different economic model. I would ask them to do first-round funding themselves, without the private sector involved, just the governments to fund first-round funding for infrastructure that looks like it would push the nation ahead. And then, just like a venture capitalist, at the end of that first-round funding, there's an awful lot of those projects you're going to kill because they don't get, they'll just die of starvation. You're not going to give them second-round funding. But at the point at which you're looking for second- or third-round funding, bring the private sector in at that point. And there's a lot of reasons to do it that way. One, you don't have to decide up front. You have more empirical data. You can see what proves out to work and what doesn't. Number two, you've made a financial investment and a commitment. So therefore, when a private sector investor comes in, they can see that you've got project managers on the, you know, on the project, that you have a history of success, that, that your capital is at risk, your people's jobs are at risk. And so, you know, you've got some skin in the game in advance of trying to ask outside capital to come in. And the third benefit is that you've shortened the timetable. Remember, 
outside investors don't like to have big chunks of money tied up for such a long period of time. So if you've funded the first round, you've gone through the riskiest period, you've proven that the solution works. And so therefore, I think attracting outside capital would be enormously more easier to, to do. So I really tried to change the paradigm. Instead of picking massively expensive projects and just launching one, two, or three and bringing private capital, which doesn't, which is resistant to putting their money at stake in an in, unstable political climate. Instead of doing it that way, the government itself that has money now, because remember, they've given up oil licenses, they've got mineral licenses, so some money is coming into all of these African nations. They don't have to depend on private investment to get through that first round of funding. And how was it received? It was received tremendously because, as one minister said to me, he said, if we do it that way, we don't have to give so much away at the negotiating table because we've reduced the risk. And so Africa is in control of her infrastructure, not the private sector. Because you don't want to sell your infrastructure like hospitals, schools, utilities, uh, roads, uh, the generation of, you know, of uh, hydroelectric, uh, you know, uh, uh, power. You don't want to sell those things and then be beholding to other nations. And so it puts them in the driver's seat to get the best deal possible on behalf of Africa. Well, we've got to go to another commercial break. This hour's flying by, folks, and I'm having a great time talking to you here from London at the G20 Summit. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Costa Report. What does your website do for you? Does it simplify doing business and automate routine tasks? Does it connect with your target audience and bring new business? If you can't answer yes, then you need to contact Sunstar Media. Located on the Monterey Peninsula for over 17 years, Sunstar Media has developed websites for startups, brick-and-mortar stores, to corporations on the stock market. What makes Sunstar different is the customization that goes into every site, tailored to each client's unique needs and vision. Sunstar's experienced pros keep you ahead of the game with their custom-fit development process for website applications that cater to your company's specific needs. Learn more at sunstarmedia.com. Mention you heard this ad on the Rebecca Costa Show and get a free web analysis report on your current site or a free web consultation for your next project. Let's discuss how Sunstar can help you. Reach out to us at sunstarmedia.com. Coast Paper and Supply has been family-owned and operated since 1948. They have a wide array of products available, including brand-name and eco-friendly cleaning supplies, paper goods, and compostable plates, cups, and cutlery. Whether your needs are for business or home, Coast Paper and Supply's friendly and reliable staff have what you're looking for. They even accommodate special orders. You can find them at 151 Josephine on River Street in Santa Cruz, Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 4.30, or call at 831-423-3350. Coast Paper and Supply is a proud member of Think Local First. 
This Sunday on Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, details on why mosquitoes may like your skin more than others. Plus, saving money with shared hotel rooms and a clean water pledge by local craft brewers. Get the latest food, beverage, and travel news Sunday mornings 8 to 10, live right here on KSCO AM 1080. Eat, Drink, Explore Radio, your lifestyle information source. From San Jose to Salinas, Red Hot News Talk, AM 1080, KSCO, Santa Cruz. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.